0: Welcome to the Channel States and uh, Migration in Europe. Today, we are discussing the UK migration and the ECHR, the European Court of Human Rights. So recently, the government of Boris Johnson uh, collapsed for a variety of reasons. Uh, One important was uh, the Northern Ireland Protocol, uh, but there were also uh, other, uh, other reasons. And uh, an important one that uh, has uh, taken up my attention is uh, the, the failure of the eviction of uh, em- immigrants in the UK to Rwanda. Uh, as a result of the intervention of the European uh, Court of human rights. So it was an important policy for the Johnson's governments because uh, the, the control of immigration has become, in the UK for a, a number of years, a very salient uh, political question. And the intervention of the uh, ECHR has um, had the result to weaken uh, possibly uh, decisively the Johnson government in the, in the previous weeks. So uh, the, the failure of the Johnson government to implement its agenda to, to, to control immigration and to reduce immigration uh, was certainly a key factor in its, uh, in its ultimate collapse in, in recent years in recent weeks. So to discuss uh, this issue and the clash between uh, the British government and uh, the, Euro, the ECHR, I am uh, very glad to have with me uh, Alain Zissé, who is uh, a, a top expert of the, on the uh, ECHR. And uh, we will discuss with Alain uh, the, the, the rising conflict between the British government and, uh, and the ECHR, so everything looks like the, the the migration policies of the Johnson government have been increasingly clashing with principles uh, defended by the ECHR, which are not in themselves uh, principles related to migration policies. It's because the migration policies of the British government were affecting deeper principles of the political system that there has been this rising this rising conflict and this conflict is bigger than as a johnson government per se Uh, the question of the control of immigration has been lasting in the british debate for a while. And even now, the, the race for the leadership of the Conservative Party has been seriously uh, also uh, characterized by the question of whether the UK should exit uh, the uh, the European Convention on uh, Human Rights. So, uh, Alain, uh, welcome. Uh, thank you for being here. So, um, let uh please share your thoughts with us on uh on this on this uh contradiction and this conflict between uh the British government, its policies in the field of migration, and uh the ECHR.
1: Sure. So thank you very much, Emmanuel, for inviting me. So um I think that it was I would partly agree with you um on what you just said. So On the one hand, I think um, there is now a clear uh, conflict uh, between, let's say, the UK government and uh, the European Convention on Human Rights and the European Court of Human Rights. There is a tension and maybe a conflict that has been uh, running for a number of years, actually. So the migration crisis, if we want to call it that way, uh, builds upon, uh, I would say, uh, more than a decade of uh, increasing tension. Um, so uh, it, it may be important to, to say a couple of things about this underlying uh, tension. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I'm not sure actually that um, the Johnson government uh, collapsed because of this issue. The reason is simply that, um, and that's also uh, a broader pattern in UK politics, especially um, in the Conservative Party, um, which is that they want to basically rearrange their relationship with the European Convention. And that is in the uh, manifesto of the party. Uh, And one of the uh, remaining contenders for the leadership of the Conservative Party Uh, Lee's Truss said or wrote that uh, it might be necessary to um, to leave the European Convention system. So we are here uh, sort of building upon a very, very strained relationship between the UK government and the obligation that derive from being a party to the European Convention, and so there's a strained relationship, and of course the migration crisis uh, further builds upon that. Um, okay, so if you want, I can say a little bit more about why there is such a strained relationship.
0: Yes, I think I think the the, the big question is what has been the 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 source of a clash? What kind of principles? have been at the root of this this conflict between the British government and the
1: ECHR? Yeah, so um, I think we can distinguish at least two levels in that uh, strained relationship. The first is that, and this is uh, becoming a bit legalistic, but I I would try to really uh, just say the essential things. So uh, the UK doesn't have a written constitution. And it has this long standing tradition of being quite reluctant towards entrenching fundamental rights. So, that is not to say that uh, rights don't exist in UK law, they do. But there is a tradition against entrenching rights into a single list that would typically take the shape of a constitution in many other countries. However, the UK has uh, signed and ratified the European Convention on Human Rights. Actually, the UK was one of the most active promoters of uh, the European Convention in uh, the early 50s. We can talk about that uh, uh, on the side if you want. Um, But more importantly, uh, the absence of a constitution and the absence of rights being entrenched in the law explains the status that the European Convention has taken, which is basically an act of parliament, which is called the Human Rights Act uh, that was enacted in uh, 1998. And so it's important to look at this uh, Act. if we want to understand the broader legal relationship between the UK and the European Convention and therefore to explain the strained nature of that relationship. And if you look closely at the Human Rights Act, you will see that um, most importantly, a UK court cannot strike down legislation that is incompatible with the European Convention. The only thing that courts can do is to make what we call a declaration of incompatibility. So basically, that is um, re-empowering parliament because it's basically just signaling, indicating uh, to the other branch of government that there is an issue that they need to address. But you can wonder if uh, parliament indeed does that. In most cases, it has but in some cases it hasn't. So if you want, I can give you an example where uh, the the parliament has been uh, very, very slow at uh, addressing an issue. And I think it's important to cite this example because I think it's basically the beginning of this strained relationship in in recent years in the last uh, two decades or so. So it's a case called Hearst Hearst against uh, the UK at the European Court of Human Rights. And it's um, a case that involved um, basically, uh, on the one hand, the right to free and fair elections, and on the other, uh, a piece of uh, domestic legislation that introduced a blanket ban uh, for prisoners for um, convicted prisoners to exercise their right to vote. And uh, the European Court of Human Rights ruled that uh, this blanket ban is uh, in violation of the European Convention. And you can imagine how um, the uh, uh, UK uh, political class in particular the UK uh, the conservative party reacted to that because it basically said that this is interfering it is intruding into our domestic democratic decision to um, shape policy and law around uh, prisoners prisoners rights essentially um but having researched this particular case i can tell you that the European Court of Human Rights did not question the democratic legitimacy of that piece of legislation. Actually, most of the judgment relies on the fact that this judgment uh, focused on the blanket aspect of this legislation. So, for instance, it questioned the proportionality of the, the, that piece of domestic legislation. In other words, the problem was that it didn't matter whether you, were, you, you had committed a petty crime or whether you were, let's say, a serial killer. That, that difference of in, in the offence that you committed did not make any difference to you being able to exercise, and in this case not exercise at all, your voting rights. This is, this is the, the, the extent to which perhaps the, the legal technicalities matter. But if you want to explain where things started to shift and to worsen in terms of the relationship between the UK governments and the European Court of Human Rights, the Hearst case is a, is a useful uh, starting point. And then with the um, uh, the rise of... The, uh, the, the Conservative Party in power, uh, they have continuously um, criticized and attacked uh, the European Court of Human Rights. And the specific case of the migration uh, policy of the, the Home Office um, basically sort of builds upon that increasing tension. Um, So it's important to keep in mind that there's actually a a quite long history uh, and a history that is both informed by specific cases like the Hearst case, but also by sort of underlying legal and structural parameters, uh, especially the fact that the Human Rights Act is a kind of, it is a both enabling individuals to claim their rights but it is, to some extent, also reaffirming what we call the supremacy of parliament.
0: Mm-hmm. And in the in the recent case uh, about migration, um, uh, do you have any any idea of what was exact? So, in the Earth case that you mentioned, the principle was free and fair elections, and um, the court considered that. The lack of proportionality in the uh, British uh, Act of Parliament uh, was against this principle. So, in the recent uh, in the recent migration um, clash, um, do you know what was the principle of the uh, ECHR that was that the court considered was clashing with the practice of the Home
1: Office? Yes, so I think that in the context of the Rwanda policy that was uh, um, um, tabled by the Home Office, um, we are perhaps perhaps witnessing another uh, problem. Um, It doesn't concern democratic rights, but it concerns uh, Article three of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is the right against torture and inhumane and degrading, sorry, degrading treatment. So this right is incorporated in UK domestic law via the Human Rights Act. And one of the obligations that derive from this right is that you cannot remove an asylum seeker when there is evidence that removing this person to his or her country of origin might lead to risk of that person being persecuted and having his or her right uh, violated. So this is the legal uh, parameter, if you want, of the situation. Now, the problem is that in the Rwanda policy, which is basically based, or at least heavily informed, by a memorandum of understanding between the UK government and the government of Rwanda. Um, The problem was a dispute about whether there is enough evidence as to whether someone being removed to Rwanda for the processing of his or her asylum uh, Claim uh, whether there was enough evidence that he or she would have um, his or her convention rights respected. Um, So, uh, this is where the tension is basically. It's whether it's about the implications of sending. these uh, individuals, these asylum seekers uh, to Rwanda with respect to their convention rights. Because, and I think that's maybe one important principle that you, we might want to, to discuss the UK government has human rights obligations both within its territorial jurisdiction, but whenever it acts abroad, uh, it still has. The same obligations, or at least to a greater extent, the same obligations, as if it were acting within uh, its own jurisdiction. Um, so, <clears throat> I, I see. I, the, but yeah, uh,
0: could you uh, could you refresh my, my memory because um, the what you described for Article three applied to asylum seekers, Article three of the thr. Applied to asylum seeker is basically the the Geneva Convention of 1954. So, can you? Uh, uh, I'm a bit confused. here. did the ECHR in 1950, which is the date if I remember well of the convention, uh, already included provisions that would appear in the Geneva Convention of 1954, which I find a bit at least it's new for me. And um, if not. Could you p- remind me which jurisdiction is in charge of the enforcement, or at least you know, litigation about the, uh, the Geneva Convention, if you know that?
1: Yes, yeah, so I mean, it's, the, the, it's very important to, uh, to distinguish different uh, international treaties here. And um, to remind ourselves that the European Court of Human Rights is only empowered to interpret the European Convention. And it's the Article Three of the Convention that it has stake. Now, it's also the case that this particular provision, the right against uh, torture and degrading treatment, is protected via other international treaties to which this or that state may be a party to. Um, And actually, the European Court of Human Rights might very well refer to these other treaties um, in order to strengthen the existence or the non-existence of this or that obligation. But so, um, yeah. So the article... Court of Human Rights yes. interprets uh, the convention rights mm-hmm. and uh, it, Article 3, I would say, is a bedrock uh, provision of that convention.
0: All right. And uh, I'm just checking if uh this article mentioned explicitly, because it's quite important, explicitly uh, asylum seekers or if whether it's, yes, I have it, I have this article now, uh, Article 3, Prohibition of Torture, no one should be subjected to torture or to inhuman or degrading treatment or punishment. So it's a very broad Uh, principle, not limited to asylum seekers. So it might well be also that the the court uh, has been interpreting this uh, this article in light of uh, all the international treaties that have specified here and there um, the statuses of various categories. and here, this is the case of asylum seekers. So, the, on the basis of Article three of the uh, Convention, the European Court of Human Rights uh, considered that when the British government has been basically deporting people to Rwanda, it did not have; it had not taken sufficient uh, uh, measures to make sure that. Uh, Article three would be respected for those people, and that they would not be returned to countries in which they have a serious risk of facing torture or degrading, uh, degrading treatment. But did the court consider at all, or not? Because this is what you seem to imply that the court did not consider that the the simple fact of returning those people, of sending those people to Rwanda. Was a form of uh, degrading treatment. So the, the sending those people to Rwanda is not a form of degrading treatment, but because they may not have a fair asylum procedure, they may be sent again uh, later to other countries where they would have this degrading treatment. Is it the case, or, or did the court could consider could the court consider that this transfer to Rwanda was in itself some form of degrading treatment. Did,
1: did I make so, uh, myself clear? Or? Yeah, yeah. So I think this is where it's very, very important to come back to uh, what exactly the European Court of Human Rights did in this, mm-hmm. uh, in this mm-hmm. matter.
0: Mm-hmm. So
1: um, the intervention, if you wish, of the European Court of Human Rights in, that, in this matter is not a judgment. It is what we call an interim measure. So this is a very special uh, procedure that is only used in uh, exceptional circumstances, Um, but it is particularly relevant to uh, asylum removal cases, because there's an issue of time. Um, In in that particular case, in fact, uh, I think it was a matter of minutes, uh, that yeah. the uh, when yes. when the European Court of Human Rights issued this interim measure, mm-hmm. it's the, the the nature of the or the the function of the interim measure is basically just to block a, a particular process derived from a policy uh, or a, a piece of legislation from uh, this or that state party to the convention. But it is not a judgment. It is not a judgment. Because in fact, and this is another important principle of the ECHR system, uh, these individuals in in question, these um, asylum seekers, have not yet exhausted domestic remedies. That's the the, the legal term. Um, They have not yet exhausted uh, domestic uh, remedies because their case is still pending for what we call judicial review uh, in in the UK legal system. Uh, Judicial review is an important part of the judicial process in the UK, where um, a court is going to consider not the substance of a particular policy, but the process by which this or that judgment was issued. it's very important, therefore, to understand that this is not the end of the story at all. Um, we still mm-hmm. need to see the result of that judicial review. Mm-hmm. And then, and then um, in case uh, these uh, applicants, these asylum seekers are unsuccessful, they then could appeal and bring a case to the European Court of Human Rights. And then there will really be, a change of system between the UK system and the European human rights system. But so far, it was just, if you want, a surgical measure uh, by the European Court of Human Rights, which is binding, so uh, the UK had to abide, but it is not yet a decision um, of the court in the sort of conventional sense of the term. I see. So the the ultimate
0: principle that was at stake what this article this article 3 uh, principle but even before that in this interim measure I understand there was another principle at stake which is the uh, giving giving uh, people the capacity to exhaust uh, legal um legal resources available within the particular uh, legal system in which they are that is uh, it seems to me some kind of principles related to having access to court basically it's um it's what it's what is at stake here no
1: yes um i think it is it is that but it is also more than that because i think you're suggesting that um the exhaustion of domestic remedies is in the interest of the individual but i would say that it is uh perhaps even more in the interest of states. So the, the concept of, uh, that is underlying the principle of exhaustion of domestic remedies is the principle of uh, subsidiarity. So it's the idea that um, uh, state parties to the convention, in this case, should be given a primary role in giving effect to the convention rights. Um, Therefore, it is empowering domestic uh, authorities and in particular courts. Um, So this is important because it says something about the broader system of the ECHR, which I think is more about domestic authorities than it is about the court. Because the convention gives a lot of uh, primacy and discretion over how the convention is implemented domestically, Okay, Um, So of course, it is important to individuals as well, because they can have, as you said, access uh, to a court and to the sort of uh, legal and judicial system from, let's say, a local court to an apex court. And so they can try to claim their rights in each and every, in, before each and every instance. Um, and it's only in the last resort that uh, they can uh, uh, bring their case and uh, lodge an application to the court.
0: But here, in the, I mean, I understand that uh, giving states' jurisdictions uh, primacy in Handling cases is in uh, in the interest of state that they want to have uh, first and foremost the capacity to to handle certain cases. And if only there is a, there is a pending uh, case, that case can go to the uh, to the uh, European Court of Human Rights. But I understand that in the particular case of eviction of migrants to Rwanda, there was some uh, attempt by the Home Office to deprive those people from the capacity to push their case to have the asylum application dealt with in the UK. So um, it's also here a uh, that the Home Office was trying to accelerate the eviction of those people. So, in that particular case, the lack of exertion of uh, domestic remedies was in the interest of the Home Office and signaled the urgency in which British policymakers were to, uh, to get rid of those people. And there is also this issue. At the at the in the EU that is this uh this notion of hotspots and uh, swift uh, swift uh, removal of people uh, from from the EU so I understand that here the the UK was trying I mean the home Office was trying to get rid of those people quite fast uh, because they know that the longer those people stay inside the, the UK the more difficult it's going to be to have eventually get rid of them. But by doing so, they were infringing uh, the access for those people to, uh, I mean, the capacity of those people to exhaust domestic remedies to to push their claim and uh, actually defend uh, these principles that is in the Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights. Uh, that is not to be sent in situations in which they could be uh, they could face uh, degrading uh, degrading treatment. So all this all this seems to me very very interesting and tells volume about uh, the situation in which in which we are today. So there is still something I I am not sure to have understood. But though so let's leave aside the issue. Okay, I understand that actually the the European Court of Human Rights has not made clear whether it's um, the problem was beyond the question of the exertion of domestic remedies was that these people could be sent eventually in locations where they would face degrading treatment or whether this transfer to Rwanda was in itself a degrading treatment. The the, the, the court has not clarified this issue, uh, as far as I have understood. So far, it's simply that the, the respect of Article three was not uh, there was no respect of Article three because those people could not exhaust domestic remedies before being sent back to uh, I mean being actually being sent uh, to to Rwanda. Do I do I ex, uh, explain things correctly, or uh, did I miss something?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that's correct. But if you want, I can I can try to to, to we can try to make a distinction between uh, rights on the one hand and procedure on the other. So the the, the issue with the exhaustion of uh, domestic yes. remedy yes yes is a procedural issue that yes. concerns everyone and every. Uh, potential or or actual application uh, before the European Court yes. uh, but the the issue of uh, of rights really has to do with uh, the extent to which again there is evidence of a risk uh, of uh, Article Three being uh, yes uh, yes yes
0: um,
1: I. So yes. I think the point
0: the point the point is made and the point is clear to me that is there is indeed this increasing tension between the um the immigration practices of the home office, and again it's not limited to the UK, it happens elsewhere in Europe, but there is a clash between the, the practices of the home office towards immigrants and deeper principle
1: of well, the post war. I would I would say to just to you're absolutely right in in pointing to to that tension. But I would just I mean, perhaps I would say that this is a classical almost a classical tension between uh, policy on the one hand and rights on the other. So the Home Office policy is justified upon its desirable outcome, which is to, for instance, um, uh, discourage. Uh, people from crossing the English Channel. It's also meant to break uh, the networks, the criminal networks of smugglers. All of this has to do with the effects right, of uh, introducing a piece of legislation, of introducing a new policy. Um, But the problem is that rights, and that's a classical, I would say, philosophical tension, rights are supposed precisely to Trump uh utilitarian what we call utilitarian or consequentialist considerations right so uh i think this is a quite classical conflict i mean if we sort of abstract from the particulars of the situation the home office and uh the uh you know the, the kind of uh, uh, concern for um uh, the right, uh, the, the increasing uh, number of, of asylum-seeking uh, applications, if we get sort of, if we abstract from the convention context, this is basically a conflict between policy and rights. Um, and uh, I guess uh, uh, as, 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 as a um, human rights scholar, I think it is important to re-emphasize uh, the notion of rights in this context. So this is precisely where rights matter, it is even when there is, even if the Home Office were able to substantiate the claim that um, adopting this policy will have uh, an effect that they want uh, basically to to, to stop uh, or at least to decrease the number of of asylum seekers crossing channels and to break these uh, criminal networks. Even if that were true, you can still wonder if uh, it is uh, rights-respecting, in fact? And I think the answer is no. Yeah,
0: but I, I fully agree with you that it is a classical tension. But on the other end, uh, I think it's not, uh, it's not uh, without reason that we have this tension in that particular case. And actually, this tension is on the one hand classical, on the other hand, it's vital because uh, the executive branch is always uh, ready to uh, bypass uh, rights, uh, that this is, this is the basis of tyranny. That is, tyranny is the lack of is arbit- is arbitrary decisions. That is, uh, the, the, the ultimate willingness of power is to be unbound. And so the executive branch will always try to achieve what it wants to achieve without regard for previous commitments. So there is this tension. It's a classical tension, but it's actually extremely a serious tension as well. That is, uh, in this tension, there is the question of uh, law and order to some extent and control, I mean, checks and balances over the authority of, of the executive branch. So I am what uh, I, I am interested in is that this tension here emerges in relation to to the immigration policy.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And um, it emerges in relation to immigration policy and at the end of the day, also what matters in this tension here between rights and policy, I mean the underlying problem is a very important principle also, which has to do with the dignity of the human person. We are not talking about a clash between rights and policy for a trivial matter. Uh, Here we are talking about a very deep principle, which is, as you say, uh, people should not be submitted to degrading treatment. So we are talking. Absolutely. And I just finished this point. I mean, we are talking about fundamental principles. And we are observing a tension that, albeit classical, is. Uh, fundamental uh, for, to avoid tyranny and to avoid abuses of power, the respect of rights by policies.
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I, I could not agree more. I would just, uh, I would just uh, add to that, that the Human Rights Act, if we take the specific case of the UK, was precisely introduced um, to prevent this kind of uh, abuse. Um, So to give you another example, which will be quite legalistic, but I think it does does, um, emphasize this aspect, Um, under the Human Rights Act, um, a uh, government minister in charge of presenting and introducing uh, a piece of legislation before the UK Parliament has, as a matter of procedural obligations, uh, he or she must explain how the peace will be compliant with the European Convention on Human Rights. Just to tell you, to give you an example of the upstream uh, role of the ECHR in the Human Rights Act. So it's not just uh, via the judicial process and uh, potentially the role of the European Court of Human Rights reviewing a case, which, as we, we, we saw, take, takes place downstream. And it, it can take a lot of time for a particular application to reach the European Court of Human Rights. Uh, it's also that the, 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 the convention matters in the sort of ordinary, the sort of almost the routine uh, lawmaking process Uh, in the UK. And um, I think you're absolutely right that the function uh, of the the convention in that particular context is is to prevent abuse at different uh, stages of the political process.
0: Yes, so I think that that can uh, conclude the the first part of our discussion, that is what was at stake in in the uh, intervention of the uh, European Court of Human Rights uh, in relation to this transfer of migrants to Rwanda, what were the, the principles uh, defended and the procedures the forms of procedures defended And so it it opens uh, it opens I think a second dimension in, in the in the discussion which is uh, what is uh, ECHR about And yeah we can go back as he suggested earlier to, the context when this convention was negotiated. Um, I did not study the um, those archives. Uh, if I remember, well, these are documents that may be related to the archives of the Council of Europe, and um, even though the, the court is not part of the Council of Europe. It's it's a separate uh, entity. But uh, So I have my own idea about that, but uh, before giving it, I I would like to ask you what you think, what the context, why setting uh, this text, and you say the British government itself was a a major proponent of this text, the European Convention on Human Rights. What was, according to you, the reason why um, lawmakers uh, sign this treaty?
1: Yeah, so this is, uh, I think, uh, a big, big question that I think has actually attracted um, a number of scholars across disciplines. So there are different uh, arguments, but I think they do overlap um, to some extent, at least in the idea that um, the European Convention on Human Rights was basically an instrument to lock in uh, democratic credentials after the Second World War.
0: Um, so I think this after was- After the Second World War after Nazi totalitarianism?
1: Well, I think that it has uh, definitely, it, it, it definitely resonated with the horrors of uh, Nazi Germany, but I think it has a much, it had even from the start a border um, objective of preventing the return of any kind of totalitarian uh, forms of government. Um, Now, I think it's very important to look at the work of historians, of legal historians, uh, to really understand the nuances of why um, states drafted uh, this convention, because I think that if you look at the context, the sort of broader European context at the time, and you take the examples of the UK and France, we're still talking about two powerful uh, European states with still some colonial possessions. And it's very interesting to see that both the UK and France, although they were among, again, the promoters of the convention, they ultimately signed the convention pretty late. Um, So the the convention itself dates back to uh, 1949, 1950. But the UK, for instance, I think waited until the 70s, if I remember correctly, to sign the document. Um, And historians point to the risk that uh, signing and sort of potentially giving effect to the convention in domestic law would have drastic implications on how they were ruling their colonial possessions. Um, So again, although there was an inspiration and there was a narrative behind the the creation of that uh, convention, if you look at um, how states really related to that convention, you you see a different array of interests and motives. Um, And you can say the same, for instance, about um, the more recent development uh, in the relationship between the European convention and uh, the fall of communism, for instance. So the convention has been also very important to consolidate uh, the Western bloc, um, and to give these, uh, the, the, all these uh, former communist states um, some foundations, if you wish, uh, of liberal democracy. Um, so I, I don't want to say too much about the historical dimension because I think this is the work of, of legal historians. I just want to give you a, an overview of how complex and interesting it is. Uh, uh to sort of draw the different uh, narratives uh uh in, in in that relationship between between uh, the founding states and then also how the convention evolved uh, and sort of played different roles in different historical uh, contexts but if i want if i could say just one more thing about the founding the found, founding moment um i think that Uh, the most interesting aspect is basically um, how these governments and basically how these diplomats discussed and ultimately included a certain number of rights in the convention and if you look at the convention some rights that you might take to be quite intuitively um, connected to human rights were not included Uh, or they were included in uh, further protocols to the convention later on. And all of of this is very important, right? Because it it sort of shapes the the identity, if you wish, of that particular convention. Um, So for instance, um, there's a very, I think, I've I've been been working in particular on uh, the right to free and fair uh, elections. And this is exactly an example of a right that was added via a protocol to uh, the convention list. And you can wonder why, right? Because it seems to me that this is um, a right that is uh, part and parcel of the democratic process. So looking at history, I think, is a very interesting way to problematize uh, what this convention is about.
0: Yeah. uh... I I think what you say also um, probably echoes uh, my own view on on this issue, um, which is that uh, this convention took place, I mean, occurred in a context that was still very much affected by the wars of uh, the Second World War. and Nazi totalitarianism in particular, this is also the time, it's just before actually, so we cannot say that it was a factor, but it's around that time that Anna Arendt is writing her book The Origins of Totalitarianism, it was published in 1951, so we cannot say it has influenced the drafting of the convention, but actually both May be related to the same uh, the same spirit after after the end of um, of the Second World War, and also you mentioned the question of communist countries as well, and how the the convention served to uh, to consolidate the Western uh, group of states against the Soviet Union and satellites. So what I think is at stake in the convention is this idea that if state power uh, becomes total and disrespects certain uh, principles, then this domestic situation can spill over in the international system. Hence the importance of having this convention, that it will bind every state. And those states that were to some extent, the, the winners of the war and those who were trying to uh, to prevent the, the uh, a repeat of of uh, Nazi totalitarianism were ready to sign, but also among the most reluctant to sign, uh, because what they wanted first and foremost was to bind others, um but actually they could do it uh, only by having a multilateral, uh, a multilateral agreement in which they would have to be bound. And therefore, uh, it's it decided that, uh, yes, you have, uh, totalitarian, as totalitarian practices developed in one country, especially if it's an important one, uh, this spills over uh, into the, uh, the international system. And here there are two cases: Nazi totalitarianism and uh, Soviet, uh, Soviet totalitarianism. So, uh, what is what is interesting here in the in the in the intervention of the court that we are discussing about human rights? Is this, uh, is this idea of not inflicting degrading tra- treatment to the to to people, and. Uh, this echoes also the theory of totalitarianism that Arendt was developing at the same time, and which it seems to me is the, the best theory so far of, um, of totalitarianism. And uh, in this theory, uh, the theory, uh, the ultimate stage of totalitarianism are, are related to the destruction of the person. And uh, she identifies three steps in the destruction of the human person. That is, first, there is a destruction of the legal person, then the destruction of the moral person, and last, the destruction of the the person as having uh, distinct characteristics. That is, people differ from each other, and they are unique to some extent. Uh, so uh, the first part is the destruction of the legal person, which is you deprive people of rights uh, on a massive scale. Then you destroy the moral person. That is, you deny uh, the possibility for human beings to become uh, to serve as example uh, in their communities or for the future, to, to develop moral characteristics that will identify a person as an example. And last, the destruction of uh, the person as having distinctive traits from the other was happening according to Arendt only in camps uh, in which you have only a a mass of people who no longer have distinct uh, characteristics. So what is interesting in the theory is that this Article Three was meant uh, to uphold the first of this uh, of these three uh, moments, that is the destruction of the legal person. Again, I am not saying that the convention was predicated upon the theory by Anarran, but I think that the theory is the best we have to understand the origins of uh, totalitarianism, and how totalitarianism uh, emerges. So, uh, yes.
1: Well, I mean, th- there's, there's a lot in what you just said that that I think we could we could zoom in. Um, but I, so, if I if I may just add uh, a couple of I mean, maybe one thing to each of the things that you've said um, to re- to to reinforce some of the points that you that that you made. Um, first, with respect to just to finish on on the sort of founding or the sort of early phases of the convention system, I think it is just uh, worth um, uh, recalling that um, initially there was no uh, permanent uh, court of human rights, permanent European court of human rights. Initially, uh, there was a commission uh, that was uh, uh, in charge of filtering. It was a filtering mechanism for, um, for uh, claims of rights violations, claim violations of the convention. Um, so in fact, initially, uh, I don't think, according to my uh, reconstruction of historical work on, on this uh, particular time, uh, there was no necessary assumption that this system would become what it is, what is, uh, it has now become, which is this very well respected permanent um, court with compulsory jurisdiction. Um, so you have to do the history of that, of that institution to, to understand the different, also the different functions that it was supposed to serve. So initially, um, uh, a, a historian of uh, the European Convention, Ed Bates, um, called the system an alarm bell system. So the idea was just to flag when there was a potential risk of uh, the return of the territorialism, whether it was uh, in, irrespective of its particular nature. Uh, so at that time, I think in the, first, uh, uh, in the first decades of the court being in existence, um, in fact, it was the commission that it was the most active and uh, we, are, we are not yet in presence of this uh, almost um, quasi-constitutional court of Europe that we have now. So that's the first thing. The second thing is that uh, just a small rectification. Um, what I said was that uh, on the one hand, um, the convention was an instrument used to consolidate the Western bloc against uh, the, the communist bloc initially, right, but then uh, with the fall of communism, it was also an instrument to, to strengthen and to secure liberal democratic credentials for these states. So there are different periods. And I think the, the relationship between the convention and, and these, um, this part of Europe is absolutely fascinating. Um, and then finally, with respect to Anna Arendt, um, so I think you are absolutely right that Article 3 Um, I think highlights uh, a number of foundational uh, issues and questions with respect to, on the one hand, the concept of human rights, and uh, with respect to the concept of totalitarianism, on the other hand. Uh, So you said a little bit about totalitarianism. I can say a little bit about the concept of human rights that Ahand had in mind, which, um, and I think she coined the phrase, the right to have rights. Um, And that is basically uh, a definition of uh, rights as uh, enabling and protecting membership in the political community. And uh, today in the literature, you have uh, theorists of human rights who do understand the concept of human rights uh, along these lines that were initially developed by Anna Arendt. And now you can wonder, or you can, let's say... um, better understand why the issue of migration is, 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 is so salient and so divisive and so loaded. I think it is because it is mobilizing these foundational issues of membership in the political community and who can be part of the political community. Um, so you're absolutely right that I think RN could be an interesting interpretive um, a paradigm here. Um, I haven't really come up with uh, elaborate thoughts on that, but I think it is difficult to disentangle the issue of migration on the one and the issue of uh, political membership on the other.
0: Yeah, I think this this leads us to 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 a third part of the discussion. That is, first, we are trying to understand what was at stake in the clash between the the home office and the, and the court in the recent events. The second part of the discussion was to understand what was the origins of those principles uh, at stake in these recent clashes. Uh, how did they fit in a in a in a particular uh, historical context what was uh, rational and now in the third part uh, as we have identified the cons the i mean the, the the principles at stake and the origins and the historical uh dimension is to say what all this tells us about what is really going on now what is uh, at the deep at the deep political uh level and um you 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 say that uh, the the fact that uh, the British government clashed with the court about um, about migration. Uh, may have to do with issues of membership. I may have, uh, I think, a slightly uh, different interpretation. I think that um, I think I think that uh, there are there are two factors uh, that are at stake in, in this. Uh, from this point of view, that is, on the one end, the logic of migration policies is uh, increasingly at odds with basic, a basic respect of the human person, and therefore basic respect, I mean, of principle aimed at preventing totalitarianism. And on the other end it's that the um, immigration policy i mean here we talk about restrictive immigration policies are uh, have become a fundamental aspect of state policies and therefore we have we have such a major clash so as you say, there are other factors in the fall of the Johnson government. I am not simply saying that the Br- Johnson fell because of the decision of the court. Of course, there is uh, a variety of other reasons. But I would, teach, I would still push the claim that this affair has been of uh, major political importance and has contributed to destabilizing this government in a critical moment. So uh, this government had been increasingly built around the idea of restricting immigration. To some extent, Brexit was also about uh, restricting immigration. Uh, the Home Office had become obsessed with, uh, with uh, irregular crossings in the channel. It was uh, becoming more and more... Uh, the, the, this government would owe its capacity to stay in power to its capacity to restrict migration effectively. And this agenda is increasingly at odds with... Uh, with basic re- uh, the basic respect of the human person, so uh, those two forces, I think, uh, uh, are the origin of the clash. And I will say things a little bit bluntly, which is that I think that immigration restrictions have become uh, an exercise of uh, of absolute state power. That is, state power getting absolute in the sense that getting unbound, absolute origin, etymologically means being unbound. um, As and is typically this kind of uh, policies that could spill over into the international system. I think there is a potential, and this is what we can discuss. There is a potential, I mean, a totalitarian potential in the continuation of uh, restrictions to immigration. And at the same time, uh, states in Europe uh, increasingly build themselves around this question of restrictions uh, to immigration. So, a dynamic in which a, a vicious circle of Increasing restrictions and it becomes the basic raison d'être almost of the state to restrict immigration, a process which itself uh leads to a totalitarian pathway. I mean, it's of course it's an aspect of a totalitarian pathway. I would not say it's all the totalitarian pathway, it will be absurd, but it's an aspect of it. That is it's part of uh, um, it's part of a, a negation of the dignity of the human person. You cannot have an ad, an agenda of restricting immigration and at the same time having the dignity of the human person as your primary concern. this is not possible. and both objectives come to clash, and this objective Immigration restrictions leads to uh, to um, attacks again, the the dignity of the human person. So, wh- wh- what are your thoughts thought on those two aspects? That is, first, is the restriction of Im- to immigration you think deeply at odds with the principles uh, that have founded the post-war uh, international law, international order as they uh, are found in the, in the European Convention on Human Rights? And secondly, do you think that uh, the um, immigration restrictions have taken such an importance in a variety of public, of, polit- of debates uh, uh, and policies in Europe that uh, they nearly become the raison d'etre of, of states?
1: yeah so so I mean this is all very, very interesting, and I think that i think i mean I agree with some of the premises and some of the conclusions, but I would probably add one component to 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 this analysis and to to this sort of sequence um, which is populism so I think that um the reason why there is such um, an emphasis on immigration, or at least one reason for why there is such an emphasis in immigration these days is that it helps capitalize on one of the populist principles, which is that um, there is a real, authentic uh, people, um, so that's one, I think that's one element that is distinct to populist. And the reason why it is connected to, to immigration is that in fact, um, it is, it, it is according to the populist ideology, it is up to the people and only to the people, to these imagined, idealized, uh, people, uh, to decide. Um, so I think that only, yeah, then yeah. explain, only then you can explain why some Just government... a
0: parenthesis here, very short parenthesis. Do you think that these people is simply a projection of the state? Because these people is actually a number of individuals that happen to be under the jurisdiction of the state. So it's a projection of the state with the authentic people that you describe of uh, which immigrants do. are not part they are a projection of the state; they are shadow of the state
1: yeah absolutely but i am i would be slightly reluctant to talk about state because i think what we have is just governments and government um uh, in the uk you have um let's say points of reference such as you know, the, the, the manifesto of the Conservative Party, for instance. And I, I think to talk about the state in the abstract sense, I think it is, the risk is that you're going to obscure the role that government plays in, um, basically in surfing on the populist way. So I think they are very, very well aware of what they're doing which is to stimulate the populist resentment by emphasizing again and again the issue of uh, immigration by the way if i wanted to be as charitable as i could be with the uk government i would say that they are not necessarily restricting immigration they want to getting back to get back control of the immigration now this is important because it uh, suggests that um, this is going to re-empower the people again. Okay, So the, I fully agree with you that this is a complete projection, that it is a completely um, simplistic and idealized account of who the people are and what their interests are. And by the way, I would also agree with you, Glenn, Jack knows this that there is a totalitarian or um, at least an authoritarian potential. But this authoritarian potential has been very well identified by scholars of populism. So once you get rid of basically most instances of deliberation, of uh, mediation, of Uh, of uh, strong separation of powers. If you get rid of all of that and you place all your faith in an acclaimed leader, because populism to a large extent needs a strong leader, a leader that can almost incarnate the people, that can at least very strongly resonate with them, then you basically run the risk of this or that leader abusing power, abusing the power that you uh, conferred to him or to her. Um, So that's where I think the the authoritarian and and maybe totalitarian potential lies, it is that uh, populism is basically empowering particular individuals at the top of uh, governmental action. And it is very, very tempting for a strong leader, a government leader, to abuse power when all these counterpowers have been eroded. So that, I think, says something about your, your point about The significance of the immigration topic to the almost to to, um, the the meaning of of the state and and how people identify to what they uh, uh, identify the state. Um, I would just be um, careful about the state. I think we have governments and we have manifestos and we have policies and we have laws, and all of that is a political. Uh, process uh, conducted by particular people. Uh, And I think we should really, uh, we should really pay attention to that. There's a lot of research on the concept and the, the broader meaning of populism. I think that's very important at the level of foundational research, but we should also take a look at what populists do when they are in power. And specific policies and the pieces of legislation that I think are doing the work, almost, as you said, I mean, almost um, in the shadow um, of of the political process.
0: Yeah, uh, again, what you say about populism echoes some of the elements of the um, theory of totalitarianism of, of Anar, that But the, the ultimate stage was destruction of the human person. But there were two previous stages. Uh, the, the first stage was the elimination of any alternative source of power, which is uh, despotism, and the second stage was what she called the movement. and um, And we discussed this issue in the previous episode of this of this channel. In in the case of France, that is our um, our politic. I mean, our elections, more specifically are taken over by movements which are uh, dominated by one uh, leader. You have those of movements are fluctuating, they they don't have internal structures of checks and balances and controls and selections. They have one leader and everything gravitates around that leader. And the movements, the emergence of movements, is for Arendt absolutely crucial to reach the ultimate stages of totalitarianism. what you refer to w- w- with populism is is also echoes also um, also this model. But um...
1: so one one thing one thing that I think um, I would uh, uh, add uh, with respect to uh, what you said about the the clash between this new meaning of the state and uh, the dignity of the individual. This is where I'm going to be slightly. Uh, uh, careful in um, using the term dignity, because I think there are several reasons. There are philosophical reasons that I think we should consider when we we give meaning um, and substance to to the notion of human dignity. So this is a a heavily debated uh, topic. Um, But I think there's also a legal reason which is that, um, with respect to the European Convention specifically, and it's an interesting fact about the convention, is that it doesn't contain, it doesn't refer to dignity, unlike, of course, the Universal Declaration. Um, And I, I think that there's a reason for that. The reason is that, in fact, this convention is as much about respect for individuals. And then, of course, you can bring dignity if you want, provided that you have a strong definition of dignity. Um, But also, it is about, basically about uh, a process, which is democracy. So you have a lot of references to distinctively political values and democratic values in the the convention and in in the preamble to the convention. Uh, this is not to say that dignity has no role to play either at the sort of normative level of when, when we want to uh, uh, prescribe a particular meaning to to, to human rights into the convention, but also actually dignity has appeared in uh, cases before the European Court of Human Rights. But it is very interesting to notice how. So it is not necessarily uh, via judges uh, and the court relying on dignity, but it is because applicants, individuals, have uh, referred to dignity in, as part of their case. Uh, so this is just one nuance. I think we are very quick in uh, talking about dignity when it comes to understanding the broader function of, of uh, human rights, and I think that's a very important. But I think that there are some nuances to bring into the concept of the convention that are quite interesting. Um, that's just a, a really uh, important nuance to me.
0: Yeah, so uh, the, the, this overall discussion is about whether, in the recent events, uh, between the Home Office and the European Court of Human Rights. There is not something bigger. Uh, a little bit when you observe a clash uh, between two groups of soldiers and you are wondering if this clash simply between those two groups of soldiers or those two groups of soldiers are, aren't, aren't the part of two much bigger armies that are here, uh, that are here um Clashing, and so what? What would be bigger here than the simple affair of the the, the eviction of migrants to Rwanda is that um, is that unchecked state power uh, leads to a dramatic uh, dra- leads both to dramatic actions against immigrants and to infringement of uh, public liberties, and you refer to human dignity as a broad term, uh, which have a totalitarian potential. That is, at the end of the day, what we observe is that our state power is unchecked. And our state power is unchecked leads that state into harsher uh, and harsher measures against immigrants. And um and at the same time, it leads also the state to uh, on a totalitarian pathway. And what maybe I mean we we are a bit nice here with uh, uh, the European Court of Human Rights, but it's um my view is that uh it's a little bit like a machine uh, this court. that is, as you say, I like this idea of the alarm bell um, that is it's a machine that reacts to a situation it's a bit like a thermometer that would tell you um, that would tell you uh, oh the temperature is rising Uh, generally lawyers love to to consider that courts have a lot of agency in politics Uh, personally I am not that convinced uh, and I would rather see yes the the court as a form of thermometer and Facing a bigger army, which is the army of increasing state power, concentration of state power, unchecked state power, and uh, leading to harsher and harsher policies against immigrants and a totalitarian pathway for everyone. Because the European Convention on Human Rights is not about immigrants primarily. I don't know many times the word migrants come in the convention, but probably very few times. It's much broader. Uh, it's a much broader text meant, basically, to uh, to enforce certain principles in domestic politics and prevent a totalitarian uh, path from developing in domestic politics and spilling over into the international system. So I think what this story tells is that uh, immigration is itself a a signal, I mean, immigration policies are a signal of how the state gets unbound. My own own view on this is that uh, with more limited state power, at some point, immigration restrictions would stop. Because it it it's, it's a little bit like like the First World War. That is, you, you had this war lasting for 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 nearly five years, because the states were extremely powerful, powerful domestically. Uh, had the state been like the monarchs even of the 18th century, the war would not have lasted that long. Uh, many people would have refused to, to get killed uh, massively during the First World War. Likewise, if the, the power of the state was less important, there would not be, there would not be the potential for such a high degree of, uh, of immigration restrictions. So I, I think that what we are observing be, behind uh, behind all that is um, is our state power is is uh, increasing and um, and immigration because you say that what they want is to get back control but I would tell them a very easy way to get back control being less restrictive if they were less restrictive and they were simply. Identifying migrants and recognizing their, their employment or, or uh, high uh, conditions in the country, I think I'm sure there would be no problem. It's because they want to restrict that, it's so hard to get control. So smugglers exist because the, the, the legal um, travel routes are blocked. Um, so, yes, I think there is something. Bigger, which, as you say, can be also part of populism, which then takes a, a broader dimension, not limited to immigration. Um,
1: but I, I think, yeah. I think, yes, that's what at stake. I, I think I agree with you, but I think I would again, I would add one one dimension uh, to, to 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 the story here, which is that if if we want to try to see this issue in a broader uh, fashion and, uh, uh, to identify the, the sort of, uh, more, uh, perhaps a stronger and, uh, and, underlying forces that it, it points to. I think we haven't really talked about, um, the thing that is supposed to adduce limits to state power. And therefore, to this trend that you have identified, which is the increasing state power, it is the constitution. And it is the type and kind of constitutionalism that we, you know, conventionally define and distinguish between a a state like the UK and a state, say, like Germany. Because the difference is basically that in the UK, you still have a strong form of what we call political constitutionalism. Now, I want to say, or maybe that's still a a hypothesis, that the type of constitutionalism that you have can operate as an enabler of populism. Because again, if you don't have a strong constitution written constitution with a clear and sort of entrenched uh, separation of powers yes, with individual yes, yes. rights, then you basically create an ecosystem in which populism might just thrive. So of course, people are going to think that I'm just a basic defender of legal constitutionalism, which is the, the, the kind of model that we have in uh, continental europe but i don't think that you need to be a legal constitutionalist to make this point i think what is at stake here is just this assumption that there is very deep in the political constitutionalism model whereby it is our it is the assumption is that it's parliament that has that is the best guardian of our rights this is the assumption of political constitutionalism so it should not be up to the judicial uh, uh, um, organs to protect those rights. It is not um, therefore desirable to have an entrenched uh, and enforceable list of rights. It is best that parliament, but what happens if parliament starts disrespecting fundamentals, fundamental values of constitutionalism? So it is an assumption that parliament will do this job best. But what happens if the parliament is basically becoming an instrument of the government that is basically just conforming to what the government wants? This is basically the separation, the principle of the separation of of powers being dissolved in front of our eyes. And I think it is interesting to run this analysis of which kind of constitutionalism is is, uh, enabling or preventing this kind of populist uh, threat, and therefore uh, the, the sort of authoritarian or, or totalitarian potential. And I just want to raise that question, but I, because I think if there is some underlying condition that can do some explanatory work, it is the kind of constitutionism that, uh, that we have. And it is not a surprise that populists, when they reach uh, office, they start changing the constitution, right? Because they want to aggrandize their executive uh, prerogatives. Uh, so, constitutionalism, I think, is an important concept. I think that was my point.
0: Yes, absolutely. That is, um, if you are faced with, uh, I mean, the, the the ultimate, I mean, the legal barrier against uh, totalitarianism is is the constitution with its checks and balances but you can have a formal constitution and at the same time uh, run the risk of uh, totalitarianism when the checks and balances within the constitution do not survive uh, the pressures the political um, the political pressure but simply to to maybe to to conclude this discussion mm-hmm. about the <clears throat> what was going on in the in the in the clash between the British government and ECHR, is I think we agree to say that uh, there is an increasing involvement of the state. Uh, the state uh, is increasingly at odds with uh, with certain principles to enact its in- increasingly harsh uh, immigration policy. That uh, that we agree on that, and uh, but. What you said then I, I find it very interesting that this increasingly harsh uh, restriction policies to a very deep at a very deep level is related uh, to the definition of the people uh, by the state. Uh, so I have my, my own view on why do we move towards increasingly restrictive migration policies. I think there is some kind of path dependency in this uh, in this um, in this evolution. With one restrictive measure triggering a variety, uh, leading immigrants to trigger other problems that lead to even more restrictive measures, there is, there is this issue, but at the, at the deepest level, there is a question of who the people is. And uh and what ignites this past dependency is is a, a definition of the people that is quite restrictive and predicated upon uh the the interest, the survival of the state. That is, it's a group of uh, often native, but at least um uh lo- long settled uh inhabitants of the country, and uh this group of people is the state plays on that group at the expense of the mobile, that is playing upon the mobile at the expense of the mobile. And the state increasingly owes its, um, its influence and its, um, its, its power to its capacity to, uh, to, uh, to be acclaimed by the mobile. I mean, immobile uh, in, a, in, a, in a relative sense. So um, at the deepest level, uh, and this is something uh, already also related to who has the right to vote, for instance, migrants or, or only uh, the natives. Uh, at the deepest level, what, what we are observing is that the state is getting consolidated, it's getting concentrated, it's getting unchecked. Uh, based on uh, a definition of the people, which uh, which ma- maximizes some form of um, defensive territorial uh, interests.
1: Yes, I think I think that's right. I think it is it is an important um, aspect of the analysis. Uh, I, would, I would just uh, uh, maybe add two things. One is that, um, if you listen to um, what uh, Boris Johnson has been saying all along, um, even in rest, recent weeks, uh, is that the, the mission of the, the UK government was to, to deliver on the priorities of the British people. And I think the this kind of um, discourse basically is 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 sort of it ends it starts and it ends there because there's never ever a uh, even an attempt to define uh, these uh, these people in the first place. Uh, So that's one thing that I think there there might be some limit to how much uh, political leaders can say about that. Uh, and But you, the, the question of the, 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 the people um, in political philosophy is a very uh, important and, I think, contentious one. Um, it takes us into questions of, um, for instance, um, who is affected by uh, the actions of the state. Um, to what extent someone who is even uh, remotely located, but somehow is affected by the state, can that person be considered a part of the people? So the demos, the question of the boundaries of the people, as it is called in political philosophy, I think it is a very, very interesting and difficult one. And you can see why the, the political class is almost um, playing with that, right? So yes, I think I think that's right. I think that there is a um, there is this underlying question, which again I think from my perspective um, it makes um, the convention even more even more relevant because the very concept of human rights suggests that you have uh, and can exercise these rights outside of. Any form of uh, political membership, right? It's, it, it is these rights that we have just in virtue of being human. Um, so there is, a, I think, a more fundamental clash here conceptually between human rights on the on the one hand and uh, the people, the state, the political community on the other, and how we're going to articulate this relationship, I think, is 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 is, is key conceptually speaking.
0: Yeah, I, I like the, your last expression, the, the people of the state, uh, because uh, at the in in contrast to peop, the people of human rights, which are humans, and um, and the people of the state uh, actually are projection of the state, and um, and behind this debate about immigration is is uh, the question of how the state defines the people and how it does it. To, uh to defend its some um, territorial interest which leads to a sequence of uh increasing restrictions to immigration and also uh to rising state power and the risk of totalitarianism as well so um yes i think that um to 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 end up here i think the my view on these things is that the european uh, court of human rights still plays a very important role in trying to keep uh, states uh, in check it's a form of uh, vertic- vertical checks and balances and um and um uh, this um there is a clear there is a clear clash here between on the one end the 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 immigration restriction, the immigration policies and um... And, uh, and this uh, this principle upheld uh, by, by the court. So uh, thank you thank you very much, uh, Alain for for your time and for for sharing your views on on this uh, crucial aspect of, uh, of the current political system of the UK, but not only many other European countries are actually in the same situation. Uh, all right, okay, thank you. Let's stop thank it I, here
1: for your invitation. I really enjoyed it.
0: Okay. Thank you.